in a series called Spiritual Dejection. And dejection is the idea that there's something that's occurred in our life that's just kind of knocked the wind out of us mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We feel dispirited. We might feel discouraged, maybe even on the edge of depression. And in each message, we've tried to show that, that God wants to work in us and through us and with us through these kind of circumstances in life. They're normative. They're unavoidable. They're going to happen to all of us sooner or later. But they can be developmental. They don't have to be destructive. And the living God, the one that loves us more than we love ourselves, the, the one that loves us more than we can really bring ourselves to believe, he wants to take these worst of experiences and he wants to take them and do something that's so surprisingly good that we could never fathom it. So we're going to look at this topic today. My hopes are all gone. Now, anyone that's ever had this experience knows that it is agonizing. It's that, that time when you're close to the edge. You're close where you're wondering if it wouldn't be less painful not to exist than to exist in the condition that you're feeling. It is a very real condition. It is excruciating. But what I'm about to say, don't jump on me if you happen to be going through this today. Hear me out. Even though it is a very real condition and it is to be respected as such, it is not accurate. It is not true. There is never, ever a time in your life, my life, any human's life, where our hopes are all gone. It's just not true. Now, that's actually good news because when we feel that way, Sometimes we have to talk ourselves down off the ledge. And if we know the truth, the truth is that there's never a time when all of our hopes are all gone. Well, then this can strengthen us to, to hang in there that little bit of time until we, we get to see what God is actually up to and what the meaning of the circumstance is. Now, here's what it does mean. If we are feeling, and somebody in here may be feeling this way today, I have been through it myself. When you're feeling like your hopes are all gone, what is indicative of is this. It means that I have, you have, we have maybe unknowingly anchored our hopes to something that's just not sufficient. There is sufficient hope. We must anchor our souls, our lives to the sufficient hope. And when we find what that anchor is, and it is available to each and every one, each and every person alive that's ever lived on the planet, and we anchor our hopes to that all-sufficient hope, well, well, then there will never be a time when we'll feel like, or when, let me rephrase that, when it will actually be true that I feel like all my hopes are gone. We may feel like all our hopes are gone, but that's when we'll need to remind ourselves that's not true. The truth is that, that I need to recalibrate what I'm anchoring my hope to. Now, when we think of hope, uh, hope, you know, is kind of that thing that's, uh, in essence, uncertain. When we were kids uh, growing up in southeast Washington, D.C., all of us came from broken homes. I don't know why. We were like magnets. We all drew together uh, to each other. And we were, we were the kind of kids that the other mothers and, and families said, don't hang with those boys. They're, they're bad boys. They'll, they'll influence you in wrong ways. We were those boys. And we had this little philosophy. It was interesting, little street kids, yet we had this little philosophy. And the philosophy went something like this. It was like, expect the worst, hope for the best, and be satisfied with whatever you get. Now, that's not the brightest outlook on life, but that was our, our experience, and we felt like that was protective. It protected us from getting our hopes too high, wanting something, expecting something, which is even more vulnerable, and then having it not occur <clears throat> or having it taken from you. So we, <clears throat> we expected the worst, hoped for the best, 
and learn to accept whatever you get. Now, that, that's not um, the kind of philosophy that God wants us to hold on to. He wants us to hold on to something that's much, much more dependable uh, and a, a, it kind of fits with reality uh, that he wants to give us. Now, we're going to introduce two men today who are in that condition where they feel like their hopes are all gone, their heart's broken, and they are probably the most disappointed men, perhaps amongst the most disappointed, dejected men that have ever lived at all. You, you'll see why, because sometimes when, when you don't have much to hope on, you don't expect much, and you don't get hurt much if you don't get what you desired or what you hoped for. But these individuals had kind of had it all. They had kind of, for the first time in human history, experienced something that no one else experienced, and then it was taken away. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to read you a section, and later on we're going to pick up with the rest of the story. So this is the start of the story. Luke 24, 13, it said, The same day, this is the, the day of Sunday when Jesus rose from the grave, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from, what does it say? Recognizing him. So Jesus came, he was alive from the dead, but, but they were unable. God kept them from recognizing him. He, meaning Jesus, he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. And we'll stop there. Now, the last few days included Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. We'll just kind of tuck that away. So what I want to do is have us take this journey with them. And we're going to first start by looking at the birth and the life of hope. The birth and the life of hope. Let's read some scripture that kind of foretells the birth and life of hope. We could go past that. Isaiah 7, 14. All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the what? virgin will conceive a child she will give birth to a son and will call him what is he called Emmanuel which means what God is with us now this is confusing for a number of reasons here it is it's about 700 and some years before Jesus actually came into the world and it's this prophecy this prediction about his coming and it says that first of all he'll be conceived by a virgin that's not an everyday occurrence but then it says that he'll also uh, he'll be a son, so he's human. He's a human being, but his name is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. He seems to be this fusion of both God and human simultaneous. Now, here's what you have to understand behind this. From the time that the uh, nation Israel was formed, about 1450 B.C., when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were promised that someone would come, a Messiah, a rescuer, a Christ would come, and he would kind of set everything right. Now, you have to understand, the Israelites, they, they had a real political edge to them because they had been abused and kind of oppressed by the Egyptians first, and then later on the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks. And now in Jesus' day and age, it was the Romans that were, you know, oppressing them. And so 
they look for this Messiah primarily to liberate them geopolitically and to set them as the, the head of the nations. What they didn't understand is that the prime mission of this Messiah was to liberate all of humanity from the thing that was really wrecking us, destroying us, ruining us, a thing that God does not arbitrarily call sin. Sin, in God's mind, are those things that he knows because of the way that he designed us can never work. They'll never work inside of us. They'll never work socially. They destroy us. Sometimes we see it. Sometimes we don't know it until the damage is done. The Messiah came to repair the broken relationship between God and, and his human his human family and by repairing that relationship try to save us rescue us from sin but the Jews were looking for a, a Messiah that was going to come and uh, relieve the oppression that they had experienced geopolitically for so many centuries they were free for about 700 years they were oppressed by various nations for about 700 years here's one more from Isaiah 9 this is all about 700 years before Jesus actually came it says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. Now check out his names, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. So far, that, that sounds human. But then the next one is what? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here we see this fusion again. Whoever this mysterious Messiah is, this mysterious Christ, he's a fusion of a real human but he's God in this human being. Now, this prediction came, like I say, about 700 years before. Now, the Israelites waited in total about 1,500 years for this promised Messiah, this promised rescuer. How many of you like waiting? You just, you, you love it when you have to wait for them, right? We, we are impatient creatures. In fact, this is funny. How many of you, when you go to a restaurant and they tell you, well, we're going to give you this little device and you'll have to wait about 35 minutes. How many of you, you're packing. You're not waiting. Can I just see your hands? You're, you're packing. You're not waiting. Can you imagine waiting 1,500 years for something? I, I mean, it's, it's rough enough when you ladies have to wait nine months, you know, in a pregnancy. Wouldn't it be worse, though, if it was uncertain? You could be pregnant for 20 months, three years, you know, who knows? Just, but at least you know it comes here and it stops there. You, you have this start and stop that's long wait when you're being stretched the way that you are stretched but nevertheless the Israelites waited for this Christ this Messiah the, the words mean the same thing Messiah Christ same thing but then the time 1500 years approximately it finally came for this unique arrival let's look at another verse that describes this unique arrival this is now the gospel of John the New Testament it says in the beginning was the word notice that it's capitalized and the word was with God and the word what does it say was God so here we have this this divine entity called the word it says the word became what this is what we celebrate on Christmas it, it's it's God becoming a human being in Jesus it's it's God revealing himself comprehensively he revealed himself little by little all through the Old Testament times progressively now he's going to reveal himself comprehensively in, in Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, for about three and a half years, only three and a half years, Jesus' ministry only lasted three and a half years. For about three and a half years, hope was born 
and hope came to life for humanity. For about three and a half years, humanity saw things that they never thought would be possible. They saw every disease conceivable healed instantaneously by Jesus. They saw Jesus control uh, matter and, and atomic structure and molecular structure purely through his mind to uh, heal a hand that was shriveled up, to, to raise a paralytic up. They saw things. They saw Jesus with a word, still a storm. They saw Jesus literally heal one that was blind, restore sight, restore hearing, restore the ability to speak to one that didn't have that. They saw Jesus on three occasions go to someone that was dead, completely gone. We, we you, you know, consider that a hopeless situation and raise them back to life. For the first time in human history, sanity seemed to come to life. For the first time in human history, people started to think, maybe, maybe it really can be different. Maybe we don't have to live in fear all the time. Maybe we don't have to be afraid of disease or accidents or death or crime or even, or even death itself. Maybe there's something that we can do to escape death. This Messiah, this Christ, he seems to have power to free us from everything we cannot free ourselves from. And so all of a sudden... The human race, the ones living around Jesus, the ones that saw his birth or knew about his miraculous birth, and then his supernatural three and a half years, they dared to start hoping that life could be better. They, they kind of spun that little philosophy we had as street kids all around. Instead of expecting the worst and hoping for the best, they started expecting the best and they wanted to hold on to it. And they thought since he was the Christ, he was the Messiah, it would stay forever. We meet these two men walking on the road to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And they are shattered. They feel like their hopes are all gone because they are not sure at all that Jesus has overcome death. They knew he was crucified. Evidently, they were witness to that. They knew all about his ministry. They were witness to that. They had heard that he had risen, but they still were uncertain about it and their hopes were crushed i think sometimes it's better not to hope at all than to hope for something and then not to have it i think we all know that as human beings and we try to protect our hearts in various ways therefore we don't hope for much we try to stay within boundaries so that if we don't get what we hope for we won't be completely crushed but for three and a half years the human race started hoping for things that we never dared to hope for up until that point Peter adds to this picture in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 it says we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus our Lord Jesus Christ we told you about his coming the things we told you were not just clever stories that people invented no we saw the greatness of Jesus with what with our own eyes eyewitness uh, the scripture again and again repeats this notion that, that the followers of Jesus, they saw these miracles. They saw, they heard his teaching. They were in his presence. It was real. It was eyewitness. Tuck this eyewitness idea uh, away because we're going to bring it back up a little later in this message. So the human race saw the birth of hope with the birth of this mysterious person. It's the Christ who was both God and human. And then they saw the life of hope and Jesus' life, his brief three-and-a-half-year ministry. It seemed as though there was no problem that humanity faced, no fear that we had that Jesus could not alleviate, could not rescue us from, and the hopes of the world were raised sky high. But you know, with all of his power over matter, with all of his power over disease and even death itself, there was one thing, there was one thing that Jesus did not because he would not 
assert his power over and that was human free will because the entire time that Jesus was ministering and doing these extraordinarily wonderful things demonstrating the kind of kindness that the human race had never seen before the kind of love that the human race had never seen before the kind of mercy and compassion and forgiveness the kind of extraordinary restorative miracles that the human race had never seen before all during that time he had people that did not like him people that wanted him gone people that rejected him people that were constantly constantly trying to trap him in ridiculous questions here he is he's the creator of the universe he, he is the creator of, of the atom itself and people are trying to corner him because the religious leaders of his day were very jealous of the attention that Jesus was getting and they were on him all the time the one thing that Jesus could not because he will not control then or now is human free will therefore even if you had a world in which there was no more sickness sorrow pain and death and, and you still had human beings who distrusted disliked disregarded God his word his will his ways we would still have a troubled existence we, we would have a troubled planet so Jesus had to take this further and we'll get to that later on in this message so we looked at the birth and the life of hope now I want to kind of summarize some thoughts because I want to get you thinking a little bit more deeply about the the dynamics of hope and where we get kind of tripped up on hope I said at the beginning of this message we may feel like our hopes are all gone but that is not true what is true is that we have not anchored our hopes to a sufficient anchor for our hopes so let me open this up a bit for you first of all we tend to think of hope in terms of temporal hopes these are present possibilities for example we hope it's not going to rain today but we don't know <laughs> we hope we don't have to cancel out come and see Sunday and all the events connected to it but we don't know temporal hopes most human beings that have ever lived and died they have very similar hopes most human beings you, you pin us down you get us in a corner you're asking questions what, 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 do you, what is your hope well you know, I just hope that, I, just, I, I don't want much. I, I just hope I can be happy and, and have a, a pretty good life. You know, not a lot of terrible troubles and, and maybe have a long life. And we, we think of long as like, you know, 100 years or something like that, which is pitifully short in reality. But the hope would be very similar. They're temporal. They're possible. I, I hope I don't die a painful death, you know, or whatever it might be like that. So we're locked in you had to follow me we're locked into temporal hopes when we hear the word hope this is how our mind goes we think of hopes like this let me take you to a second category but there's such a thing as transcendent hopes transcendent hopes are presently what they're not possible uh, you know those are things that for example Jesus did during his three and a half year ministry they were absolutely impossible prior to Jesus they're impossible now as well unless God intervenes again in the ways that he did in the life and ministry of Jesus so transcendent hopes are presently impossible now transcendent hopes confuse us we're not even sure <laughs> we're not even sure what transcendent hopes are you're sitting there looking like I'm tracking with you man but you're not really sure what I mean by transcendent hopes so here's how we discover what our transcendent hopes are there, there, is a, there is a methodology to discovering them here it is we have to use these God given imaginations of ours mix them with our deepest desires not deep desires deepest desires I'm going to show you what that is in a second 
and that produces our transcendent hopes. Imagination, God-enlivened imagination fused with our, not deep desires, but our deep desires. Let me show you the difference. Deep desires like, uh, I hope I get the raise. I, I hope she says yes when I propose. Um, you know, I hope it doesn't rain today. Those are like deep desires, all right? Actually, the rain thing is not even a deep desire. But those are the desires, you know, I hope my family will all be safe. I, I hope my son, my daughter will be, they'll do good in life, you know, and, and we can go on. Those, those are deep desires. They're not your deepest desires. Our society has created this, this messaging system that is nonstop. It's around the clock. It distracts us. It disturbs us. It never encourages us to, to find out these deepest desires. It does nothing to sensitize us to these deepest desires. It does nothing to encourage us to elevate these deepest desires. And when we start to elevate these deepest desires, some of us feel childish. We feel foolish. We feel silly. And society's messaging causes us to feel that way we forget that there was a three and a half year period in human history where the wildest things of our imagination, the one most wonderful things were possible when Jesus was on this earth. And that has been kind of submerged more and more. We're even trying to change the dating. Most of the Western world, you know, always set our, our dates to the coming of Jesus. Now they're trying to, you know, put this common era thing. It's more and more suppressed. But here's what the deepest hopes are. Okay, let's just say... You hope that you will be healthy, have enough food, have enough clothing, uh, enough shelter for the rest of your life that you and your family are in those conditions. You're not asking for everything, but you're asking for something. Let's say that's one of your hopes. But that's not your deepest hope. If you could blink your eyes and cause every living human on the planet to have a truly wonderful life, have all the clothing they need, all the food they need, all the money they need. If you could blink your eyes and see to it that everyone was healthy, everyone was loved, everyone was cared for, how many in here would absolutely blink their eyes and do that? Let me see your hands. Yeah, that's your deepest hope. There's, there's something beautiful that God's, God's put inside our deepest self. It's submerged. Sin is kind of, you know, distorted a bit, and we, we are quick to forget it because of society. We, we say, oh, Bill Randy, you know, why should I hope for something that can never be possible? I just told you, transcendent hopes are presently what? Impossible. But they were possible for three and a half years, and Jesus promises they will be not possible. They will be certain again. So transcendent hopes is something that we can anchor our hope to Therefore, the thought that uh, I, I'm without hope, I have no hope, my hope is all gone, it's never true. Because Jesus actually rose people from the grave. And he predicted his own death multiple times and his own resurrection, and it occurred. And so transcendent hopes are trustworthy anchors for our souls. But transcendent hopes are something that we're not real familiar with. Listen, if you look deep inside, you, you let your imagination go and ask God to lead and guide you by his spirit and you fuse it with your deepest desires, you'll come up with your transcendent hopes and your hopes are beautiful. You would want everybody to be loved. You would want everybody to feel safe and secure. You would want everybody to feel valuable. You would want everybody to be safe. You would want a world where you could let your kids out and they could play anywhere at all and they'd never be in any danger. You'd want a world without crime, without prejudice, without hatred. You'd want a world without war. It's in you. God planted it in you. 
but we have to allow these desires to come to the surface and we're afraid to do that because we think why should I desire something that's presently impossible but that's what I said transcendent desires are presently impossible but we know they are possible because for three and a half years they were everyday life when Jesus was there and his followers had their hopes raised to this transcendent level and when he was killed on the cross and they couldn't understand it their hopes went to the lowest conceivable level. I believe that the early followers of Jesus who did not understand his crucifixion were probably the most dejected the most broken the most disappointed the most dispirited and probably depressed people that have ever lived because after seeing life the way it was meant to be for three and a half years and then to have it apparently taken away and they, they didn't quite understand that Jesus meant what he said when he said he was going to rise again in three days that's a worse kind of dejection so let's, let's go back to our text now and let's pick up the rest of the story so these guys are walking along the road to Emmaus Jesus comes upon them God is keeping them from recognizing that it's Jesus Jesus starts to converse with them and they're saying, Whoa, what are you, what's with you? You don't know what happened in Jerusalem? Everybody knows what happened in Jerusalem. The conversation picks up. Now they're talking, these two followers of Jesus, to Jesus. But our leading priest and the other religious leaders handed him over to be what? Condemned to death. Again, they, they were jealous of him. They were, uh, he was stealing the attention that they, they treasured. And they crucified him we had what is the word we had hope man three and a half years they saw life in a, in a dream a transcendent state we had hoped he was the messiah who had come to rescue what does it say now that's that's where they fell short remember what i said israel had been first oppressed by the Egyptians then they were oppressed by the Assyrians then they were oppressed by the Babylonians then they were oppressed by the Persians then they were oppressed by the Greeks then they were oppressed by Rome in Jesus day they were sick of being pushed around and treated inconsequentially by these what they looked upon as pagan governments so they had this micro focus of what the Messiah came to do and it was the wrong focus the Messiah came to to really deal with the deepest problems that humanity had they were just looking for a geopolitical solution they were hoping we had hoped he was the one who would rescue Israel well, he didn't want to rescue Israel he wanted to rescue every human being on the planet from what we really need to be rescued from which is our distrust in God which produces disobedience to God which produces what he calls sin which is self-destructive socially destructive ignorant living that's what the Messiah came to save us from you'll see that even more clearly in a bit he had come to rescue Israel this all happened three days ago remember he was crucified on a Friday Saturday's in the grave and then Sunday rises let's go on then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning this is Sunday and they came back with an amazing report they said his body was missing and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive some of our men ran out to see and and sure enough his body was gone just as the women had said then Jesus said to them now Jesus is talking to the two guys you foolish people You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to what? Suffer all these things before entering his glory. 
Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Pause for a minute. He's taking them through particularly all the multiple sacrifices, all the dead animals that the Israelites had offered through the age. He's saying they were all pointing to me. Those animals didn't mean a thing. They were all saying that in order for evil to have its back broken, in order for the free will of man to return freely to its creator, it would take a revelation of God. The Almighty would have to show himself a suffering servant he would have to show that his sacrificial love always governs his almighty power he would have to die physically before the power of evil could ever be expelled from men by free will he takes them through all those scriptures all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself by this time they were nearing Emmaus a seven mile walk and at the end of their journey Jesus acted as if he were going on but they begged him stay the night with us since it's getting late so he went home with them as they came down to eat he took the bread he took the bread and he blessed it then he broke it and he gave it to them suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him and at that moment he disappeared notice how different his conditions now he can appear and disappear they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the what? The scriptures to us. God still means for that to happen. I, I just did a Bible Institute this past Tuesday night trying to share some things that I've learned through the years, through, through the decades actually about how we can think our way through the scripture so that our hearts will burn. We will meet God in the scripture. We won't just be doing an academic exercise or something dutiful to appease God but we'll, we'll actually encounter God and it transforms us uh, inevitably so it ends here Jesus disappears and they, they finally recognize him now these guys they race back to the other uh, disciples and they, they say it's true everything the women said it, it's true we saw him too he's alive just as he said that he would be so we looked at the birth and the life of hope. Now let's look a little more closely at the death and resurrection of hope. Here we go. The death and resurrection of hope. First, the death. In the book of Colossians in the New Testament, it says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live where? What this means is this the almighty infinite eternal first cause the creator of all things could not make himself known because he was so expansive so almighty unless he literally made himself smaller in christ in other words he could finally reveal to both ancient angelic civilizations as well as to humans who he really was by making himself smaller in christ by taking on humanity he could finally show that he's just not the almighty god but he's the almighty god whose behavior is always governed by his sacrificial love for god in all his fullness was pleased to live in christ and through him here's where it gets interesting through him god what is the next word Reconcile. This is a relational word. You get in an argument with somebody, you, you and your best friend get in an argument, you need to be reconciled. Uh, husband and wife, you know, you get, out, you get duking it out, you know, and you might, you know, split up for a while, but you're, the hope is you'll get reconciled. So Christ 
death in particular was meant to bring about a reconciliation and through him God reconciled everything to himself he made peace with everything where in heaven there's angelic controversies going on and on earth by what means by means of Christ's blood where on the cross because it was there that God could finally show who he was everybody knew that he was almighty Satan had slandered him terribly everybody knew he was all-powerful but an all-powerful being can be pretty darn intimidating and pretty uncomfortable to be around but when that almighty being shows by going to a cross and letting the the creatures of his own making mock him humiliate him beat him crucify him all because he loves us he says to the people that are in the act he says father forgive them they don't know what they're doing well, well now the satanic slander that God is just this big bully you read it back in Genesis 3 he's this big bully that just kind of enjoys having people do obeisance to him bow down to him he wants to keep us dumb and under his power he wants to hold back from us we could be like God ourselves if we only knew the the truth we only had the knowledge sufficient knowledge and he's holding back all those lies that Satan spelled it that God doesn't always tell the truth now God has pulled them to shreds by revealing himself in Christ and particularly his sacrificial death on the cross now there is a basis for us to be reconciled to God we ran from God it says that Adam and Eve when they saw God coming into the garden after they broke trust with him they ran from him now there's a basis for us to run toward him because we see him for who he really is in Christ and particularly his sacrificial death on the cross let me, let me put this in a, in a little bit of a box here for you humanity it started with Adam and Eve in the garden when Satan slandered God's character we went from trusting in God to distrusting so Adam and Eve started it it's been passed down to all of us distrusting God disregard for God when we distrust him we're not interested in him we just soon not hear about him that produces disobedience and disobedience sooner or later brings destruction on us individually as well as socially so by God revealing himself in Christ and going to the cross to show his love, his sacrificial love, that his motivation is always pure, it's always holy, it's always good, it's for our, our highest good, he can now bring us back to a place where we trust him. God can do nothing for human beings or angels that will not trust him. He can molecularly, you know, he can modify, you know, limbs and he can heal diseases and he can calm storms, all those things. He can even raise people back to life but when it comes to human will and angelic will God has given us as image bearing beings freedom to choose and so God has to literally win back our trust by revealing himself uh, sufficiently to us so from distrust to trust and then from disregard to supreme regard and then supreme regard to obedience and obedience always brings development I start to become the Christ-like version of myself that God always intended me to be God's eternal plan is he's going to have a family of Christ-like beings who love Christ and love one another and stay devoted to Christ and to one another for all eternity they, we have to be willing to trust God to want God to want his righteousness to fit into a world that actually can uh, endure eternally with everybody having the highest kind of a life possible let me go back 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 it says looking at the cross his death now Christ carried the what the burden of our sins he was nailed to the cross stop he was nailed to the cross I'm going to hide it <laughs> am I hiding it so that 
so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty of our sins and we could all go to heaven so that we wouldn't have to suffer eternal torture in hell and we could go to heaven that's why Christ died for us for our sins right he was nailed to the cross so we would and therefore his death was meant to be a deterrent deterring us from continuing in sin which is self-destruction social destruction and a motivation to get us to live right when we see who God is in Christ when we see his sacrificial love for us when we see the beauty of his own life when we see the power that his kingdom will have no more sickness sorrow pain or death or anything when we see it it's meant to motivate us I wish we would stop and look more carefully with a, with a clean set of lenses on a lot of these kinds of verses. In fact, I did a whole Bible institute on this trying to show that the sacrificial death of Christ was meant to be a dynamic reconciling power in us, reconciling us to God, motivating us to want to trust God, to want to obey God, to hate sin, to see it as insanity, to see it as self-destruction, to see it as soul suicide and social suicide. It, it was meant, to, I'm going to read it to you. He was nailed to the cross so we would, can you say it with me? Stop sinning. Are we? Has it worked? Is it working? and start what is it working because there's nothing else he can do he's revealed the depths of his love he's done everything that he can to regain our trust and he's demonstrated the beauty of a life that is free from sin in himself and that's the highest motivation and the highest deterrent for sin that, that God can give us let's look at another one now we're looking at the other side. So we look at the death of, death of Christ, the death of hope, and now we're going to look at the resurrection of hope. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many what? Convincing, convincing proofs. Many, not, not a few. Many convincing proofs that he was what? Alive. Alive. He appeared to them over a period of how many days? How many did not know that? Did Jesus didn't rise from the dead and appear to his disciples, you know, one time on the first Sunday and then another time on the Sunday after that, but that he continued to appear to masses of people for 40 days. It's okay, don't, don't feel bad. How many did not know that? Can I see your hands? That's what I figured. Most of us don't. 40 days. Back in 1994, 95, how many of you were alive? And you were old enough to know, know what was going on? <laughs> okay. So, like, you then remember the trial took 11 months the trial of one of the greatest running backs that ever lived O.J. Simpson and no doubt you remember this one com uh, component of, of the trial where <laughs> they took the gloves and, and, and O.J. makes it like he can hardly get that thing on his hand you know and, and then when they're on his hands they're all sitting up all weird and, and, and don't get me wrong I, I, I don't know the truth about OJ you know it's all circumstantial evidence I'm going to talk about that a bit but anyway if you remember the phrase you remember the phrase <laughs> if the gloves don't fit you must acquit <laughs> yeah yeah circumstantial evidence but let me change that story a little bit and, I, and I'm just changing it for, for an example instead of circumstantial evidence what if there were actually five unrelated eyewitnesses that all saw simultaneously him do the deed to Ron Goldman and, and to his, his ex-wife 
five different people, five different angles, unrelated people, they all were eyewitnesses and they showed up in court and said, I saw him and this is what he did and I saw him and this is what he did. Would that, would that court case ended the way it did with him being acquitted? How, how, many, how many would say no way, not with five eyewitnesses? Can I see your hands? Yeah, it, it would have to be the most corrupt court in, <laughs> ever. Eyewitness testimony is a very big deal, as it should be. OJ was convicted or not uh, acquitted based on circumstantial evidence. Now, I'm going to do something with you that I, that I do frequently because most people don't think that there's, there's a compelling body of circumstantial evidence. Now, there's also eyewitness evidence, but a compelling body of circumstantial evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead physically. They think it's just this thing that, oh, kind of these religious-minded people, they just choose to believe that he rose from the dead. It doesn't really matter. It's just your choice, yada, yada, yada. No, 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 no. There's compelling evidence. I'm going to go through this as fast as I can because I know I've got, I'm going through a lot. Of evidence for the resurrection. Here we go. First one, they put a Roman seal on his tomb, and a Roman seal was broken. You dare not touch a Roman seal in Jesus' day because Rome was the most feared fighting force. They were the, the, you know, the empire of that day. Nobody in the right mind. The empty tomb, except for the grave cloths, is really interesting. When you read John chapter 20, it says that, that the head wrap was tossed off in the corner, but the rest of the wrappings around the body were just kind of depressed like a cocoon, evidence of a supernatural resurrection. The soldiers were gone. They had Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. They all fled. Roman soldiers didn't flee from anything because they knew they would likely be executed. But when the angel appeared, evidently it was so shocking, they fled. The unexplained massive stone move those stones that they had rolled across the opening of that cave there where he was buried they're like a one or two pound, two tons not an easy task to do the radical change in two skeptics and one enemy who are the two skeptics thomas was the first one when the disciples said and saw jesus first week that he was alive thomas said i'll never believe that he's alive and he was one of jesus 12 other followers he says i'll never believe jesus is alive unless i can put my hands in, in his wounds uh, in the wounds in his hand, or put my finger in the wounds in his hands and in his side. Jesus appears to him a week later, and Thomas touches and, and falls down and just says, My Lord and my God. He finally saw who Jesus was. The other skeptic, ironically, was Jesus' half brother, James. James was not a follower of Jesus. Imagine how hard it would be living in that household. Jesus is perfect, he never gets in trouble. You're, 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 you're just a regular old sinful guy, you know. Uh, but when James sees him alive from the dead, he not only becomes his follower, he becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And then, and then an enemy. There was this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And when the Jesus movement started spreading out, he tried to round up, arrest, and sometimes kill every Christian that he could. He killed or was partaker of the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then he sees in Acts chapter 9, the risen Jesus and Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, the apostle. <laughs> a guy whose life is... <laughs> is so changed that he ends up the recipient from the Holy Spirit of God of 13 books in the New Testament and he dies a martyr's death from Nero rather than deny Jesus but he started out as an enemy how do you explain it the repeated appearances over 40 days we, we read about that but what we didn't read about is this eyewitnesses 1 Corinthians 15, 4, or 1 Corinthians 15, 6, can't remember which. It says that 500 people, and they were obviously still alive because Paul was appealing to the, that idea, 500 eyewitnesses at once. We said just five eyewitnesses would have turned the OJ trial around, 500 at once, changing the day of worship. Jews were strict Sabbatarians. That is, they worshiped on Saturday. Then when Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday, they started meeting on Sundays. 
And then the transformation of the disciples. When Jesus was arrested, they all ran. They, 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 they were confused. They thought he was going to use his power to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so they thought when they were arresting him, he would fight back. He didn't fight back. And they ran and they hid. And Jesus appears to them. They are hiding on that first Sunday. And he appears. And that changed these guys forever. Their life was never the same. They lived the rest of their life to tell everyone that could breathe the truth about God and the truth about life, starting with the story of Jesus. And I know that's true of some of you. I know since you found out that God not just loved you as a, in mass, but loved you personally, and that Christ sacrificially loved you enough to go to the cross for you, you trusted in him, you've been following him fully and freely, and you're ready to follow him forever, and you're ready to tell anyone, anytime, anywhere the truth about God and the truth about life because he has changed your heart and changed your life and he has removed a great deal of the fear from your life just as he did for these individuals let me, let me show another verse to you now we're on the other side of this thing this other side of hope 1 Peter 1 3 it says give praise to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy he has given us a new birth and a living what? hope it's alive Jesus is alive the hope is living because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and we have a priceless inheritance an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you it's pure it's undefiled and it's beyond the reaches of change and decay remember what I said earlier I said that that even though we might actually feel like my hopes are all gone that's not actually ever true it just means that we have fastened on to temporal hopes instead of transcendent hopes this is the transcendent hope it says you have I have if you're a follower of Christ we have an inheritance it's kept it's pure it doesn't change isn't this cool you don't no more maintenance you don't have to do any more maintenance in heaven evidently you don't even have to clean I don't know, I don't know how it works but evidently there's no dust there so <laughs> it's there that's why there never should be a time when a human being feels like my hopes are all gone no they're not no they're not there's transcendent hopes that are accessible for those that put their trust in Christ and become his followers and one last one <coughs> excuse me Hebrews six nineteen. it says we have this hope as a what an anchor for our soul firm and secure we said at the beginning that if we're feeling that our hopes are all gone it's because we have anchored our souls to insufficient hopes we need to anchor our souls to transcendent hopes because nothing can touch them disturb them take them from us we will always possess them and they're given to all that put their trust in Christ and become his follower let me close with this idea for you what am I what are we anchoring our hopes to today are my hopes knowingly or unknowingly primarily anchored to temporal hopes or is my ultimate hope your ultimate hope anchored to transcendent hopes eternal hopes that nothing can take away nothing in this life that that happens can take away let me wind it up with this temporal hopes if I'm locked into temporal hopes they equal uncertainty we hope it doesn't rain today but we can't be certain and uncertainty brings destabilization and destabilization can often lead to dejection I get my hopes on something that don't occur and now I'm dejected contrast that with this transcendent hopes bring not uncertainty but certainty 
They are timeless. They are eternal. Nothing can touch them. Nothing can steal them from me. And that brings stability, stabilization, and that brings what? Satisfaction instead of dejection. I want every one of you, and God wants every one of you, to walk out of here today as those that have made a decision to put their trust in Christ and become his followers for the rest of your life. And he wants us to walk out of here today with those who have anchored our hopes onto transcendent hopes because we're going to have certainty. We're going to have, because they'll be stabilized, and we're going to find increasing satisfaction. Age 23, I put my trust in Christ and became his follower. I have absolutely, progressively experienced certainty, stabilization, and satisfaction it is an in- inevitability when we anchor our hopes to that which is trustworthy and sufficient Amen. I want that I want that so much for everybody in this room please hear me out I, I, I want to declare it again I made a thinking man's decision at age 23 in a world where everybody's following somebody ourselves or somebody else I made my decision I'm going to put my trust in Christ and I'm going to follow him and I follow Jesus fully if he says do it I do it he says stop it I stop it and I follow him freely he has won my heart won my trust and I'm going to follow him forever because he changes not and, and the greatest joys of my life have come from following him I want every day of my life to be just a little bit more like him because a little bit more like him I experience life as it was meant to be deep inside of each of us there's that yearning for this transcendent hope I hope you'll let it pull you pull you toward Christ this very day let's pray Father you know my heart's desire in this and it's especially for anyone in here that may not be anchored to the transcendent hope that we have in Christ his life his resurrection may your spirit speak to us uh, help us to escape the distraction of society until we we look at things as they really are in your perspective help us to, to anchor our souls this day to your transcendent hopes I ask it in Christ's name amen